Thank you. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Lamentations in the first chapter of that book. And I want to thank you for your prayers this last week while I have been ill. A week ago Saturday we had our Parenting 1-8 conference and about mid-morning I knew that I wasn't feeling well. In fact, I almost went home and then in hindsight after coming down with something I wished that I had so that no one would have been exposed to whatever it was that I was getting at that point. I hope that I did not make you sick. But uh, I ended up with a fever for about four days. About every day it would go down a degree. But uh, you know how those things are. Once they finally are gone, then you still are fatigued. And it really wasn't until Friday and again yesterday that I felt pretty much my strength restored and very, very grateful for that. And thank you for those of you who did pray for me. Very grateful and very thankful to Pastor Newton for his ministry of the Word to us during that time. I want to read just a portion of this first chapter, and it will come from three sections. We'll start with the first five verses. Lamentations 1 and verses 1 through 5. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who once was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers, all her friends, have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. And then please, the first line of verse 8. Jerusalem sinned greatly. And the first two lines of verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His command. Jerusalem sinned greatly, verse 8. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command, verse 18. There could scarcely be, I think, any book of our Bibles that it's more important to keep in its historical context than the book of Lamentations. You just simply cannot understand it, and it will overwhelm your spirit with a sense of being oppressed 
unless you keep that in mind. What I'm talking about is this, that you have to always remember when you read this book that you are at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from where you began when you first began to read about the history of this nation. Where did you begin? And what was the nature of what we were told? Well, we have moved in our Lord's Day morning series from that beginning. And we essentially used the 34th chapter of Exodus as our commencement point. This is immediately following God's deliverance of these people from their oppressors in Egypt. And then his quickness to forgive them when they almost immediately apostatized from him and sang and worshiped and danced before a golden calf claiming that this was the God who had delivered them from Egypt, who had given them that great deliverance at the commencement of their national life. That was the beginning. And what I'm saying is, when you read the book of Lamentations, you're at the exact opposite end of the spectrum chronologically. And what you have and what you read here then has to be read against that backdrop. Now these people and their capital city have been delivered into the hands of their enemies. And rather than God hearing and answering prayer as he did when Moses interceded at Sinai, we're told in the 30th, the third chapter of this book that is as if God had hidden himself now in a cloud and no prayer can pass through, Jeremiah says. The exact opposite of God's responsiveness at Sinai when he came down on that mountain in a great thick black cloud and yet was quick to respond to Moses' prayers. Now you've covered yourself with a cloud that no prayers can pass through and delivered them over this way. Now folks, let's be sure when we read this book then, that we keep that whole span of centuries in our minds. It's over eight and a half centuries. That would be as if the beginning of our story was way back in the 12th century. And all of these centuries have run, and it isn't until now that finally it is as we read. And what we have here then is the Spirit of God breathing out through the pen of Jeremiah what this book is titled as the Lamentations. It is the Spirit of God's Lamentations. It isn't something that Jeremiah himself has contrived. It's not his putting the worst face upon things. It's not the circumstances as he interprets them. 
Every line of this book is breathed out by the Holy Spirit after eight and a half centuries. It has come to this. And what we discover then is that the horrors that this nation now has been subjected to are the consequences of their experiencing just as it has been said in that 18th verse. The Lord is righteous. There is no unrighteousness with Him in any of this. He is righteous. I And Jeremiah here is not speaking of himself personally, but this is the city, as it were, personified in speaking. I, or the nation, have rebelled against his command. And what we saw two weeks ago is something really magnificent, and that is that as the Spirit of God breathed out this book, he did so in a highly crafted literary way. It's one, of course, that isn't displayed in our English versions. It really couldn't be. But it is graphically, vividly displayed in a Hebrew Bible. And what you discover is that the book has basically been formed as chapters that are acrostic in their nature. That is, the first lines of the various verses begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the third chapter in particular is a triple acrostic. It's 66 verses long. It is the alphabet three times over. Now, if you're reading that in a Hebrew Bible, you cannot miss it as a Jew. It would be absolutely impossible not to see that. And as we saw two weeks ago, the very heart of that triple acrostic and the very heart of the book then consists of the three verses starting in chapter 3, verse 31. We ought to read those three verses again this morning. In the midst of all of this grief and lamentation, here is the very heart of this book, unmistakably vivid to a Jewish reader. Verse 31, the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict, look in the margin of your Bible, literally, from his heart. He does not afflict even then, all those centuries later, It isn't from his heart. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. What a marvelous thing. And it is in this third chapter that has that, that is central. It is in this third chapter that we have the use of several Hebrew words that are all translated the same way in our Bible and they only occur in this chapter and therefore our English word that translates these several Hebrew words, one English word, several Hebrew words, that word only occurs in this third chapter. 
And I want to show it to you. It's previous to the paragraph that we just read. But it is the thing that, that paragraph that we just read is the thing that would give reason for this word to occur and for people to take hold of it. Would you look please at the 18th verse? And I would suggest that you underline these. There are only four occurrences of what I'm going to show you. Verse 18. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my what? My hope. My hope has perished from the Lord. Look please at verse 29. Let him, that is the one who sits alone and has been subjected to this, let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Verse 18, my hope has perished. Maybe there is hope. Verse 29. And in between, two more occurrences, and I need to begin reading now with the 19th verse, and we'll encounter them. Remember that this is an acrostic, that every three verses, you then have the next letter. And so verse 19 begins three verses of a new Hebrew letter. So this is a stanza, read it as a stanza. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But that isn't where that little stanza concludes. It concludes here, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. What do you recall to your mind, and therefore I have hope? Next stanza. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Verse 18, I have no hope. Verse 21, but I recall certain things to my mind and I do have hope. The Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in Him. Verse 29, maybe there is hope. Now folks, that just simply is not coincidental. That's the Lord's doing and that ought to be great and marvelous in our eyes this morning, especially <clears throat> if you came here today or you're listening over the live streaming and it's all you've been able to do to muster just a little bit of confident expectation in the Lord. And maybe it is that our lacking confidence or security this morning is due in some senses to the fact that we are very, very cognizant of our own failures and the fact that anything that we may be experiencing of gloom and darkness and night in our souls is 
not due to any unrighteousness on God's part. What a blessed thing to open up this book of which there could be more more dismal in all of your Old Testament. What a blessed thing to open up even this book and find right at the heart of this book this matter of there being hope. And I want to for a moment call to your attention the exact wording of the 21st verse. Would you look at that verse again, which is the last verse of those three in which he has spoken of the bitterness and the wormwood, and his soul remembers that, verse 20. That's always part of the difficulty, the worm of memory and it eats out, it hollows out all of the morale in a person's soul. But verse 21, this I recall to my mind. Now you do not have this in the margin of the New American Standard Bible, but you do have it in the margin of a King James Version Bible. The word mind here is the Hebrew word for heart. And very often in the Old Testament, it is referring to one of the elements in the inner man. In some cases, the mind. That's the way the translators have rendered it here. But it is the word heart. And the word recall here is a word that has reference to returning to something. You know, of course, that when your mind returns, it means you're remembering. One more thing I need to say about that word. Any of you who have studied Hebrew are familiar with this concept that Hebrew verbs can occur in various what are called themes. And this particular theme is a theme that means to cause something to happen. So the idea is you're causing your heart to recall. You're making it do it. You've moved from passivity and you're active. You're, as it were, taking hold of your heart and insisting that it start thinking about the past. You're going to make it recall. And in the margin of a King James Version then, this is translated, make to return to my heart. You might want to put that in the margin of your Bible, your New American Standard Bible, or your English Standard Version, or at least put it in your notes. Look at the 21st verse again. This I make to return to my heart. My heart has been overwhelmed with bitterness and wormwood, and the thing that gives the cutting edge to it is my recognition that it's all my fault. It's due to my sin. The Lord is entirely righteous. I've been the one who's broken His commands. But this I make to return to my heart so I have hope. Verses 22, 23, and 24. And I want to do what 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon told his people that he wanted to do when late in his own ministry, when he was under great burden, he preached on these verses and he said to these people, I want to get you to preach to yourselves today. I want to try to get you to wake up your memories and try out a few pages from your old diaries and remember what God has done and been for you. And that's why I've entitled the message today, Return Your Heart. It's taken from the first line of verse 21. Return your heart. Return your heart to what? Return your heart to the beginning of the story. Return your heart to Exodus 34. Return your heart to Moses, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And he recited various perfections of his goodness. Return your heart to the goodness of God. Just as Jude encourages us when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep that in view. So folks, the message this morning has only just two points to it. It's fairly simple. Needs to be. Sometimes when we're overwhelmed, what we most need is something that's very, very easy to capture. And I want to call your attention, first of all then, to what it is in those verses, 21, excuse me, 22 and 23, what it is that the Spirit of God wants to bring back to the memories of our hearts. Make your heart return to these things. What things? Let's underline them. There are three perfections in verses 22 and 23. I've got them underlined. You may want to underline them. What's the first one? His loving kindnesses. What's the second one? His compassions. What's the third one? Verse 23, His faithfulness. Now you've got to remember this, that all three of those were what God recited to Moses at Sinai. When God gave to Moses a recitation of the glory of his goodness, these were the three, along with slowness to anger, they've experienced that for eight and a half centuries. Finally, God's wrath was poured out So they had come to the conclusion of his slowness to anger. Does that mean then that the other three, the loving kindness, the compassion, the faithfulness, that those also were terminated? No, here at the end of the story, eight and a half centuries later, the Spirit of God says, I want you to return to your heart so you will have hope these three. And you might want to put that reference in the margin of your Bible, Exodus 34, verse 6. Folks, again, this is clearly the mind. This is the mind of the Spirit of God. He is the one bringing these things to the attention of the early readers of this book and to our attention this morning. 
Let's take each of these in order then. His loving kindnesses. Do you notice that plural? God's perfection is one. It's not multiple. But our experiences of it are multiple, which accounts for it being pluralized here. His loving kindnesses. In other words, your experiences of His steadfast loving kindness your experiences of that are moldable. And would you notice, please, again, I have to call your attention to the specificity of the wording here, that in the margin of your Bible, you have an alternate translation. Do you see that there? Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses, that is, your experiences of His steadfast loving kindness, they're what? Well, here's one translation, they never cease. But the margin of your Bible, here's another it's of those that we are not consumed. And neither one of those translations is possible. The King James Version that many of you are familiar with renders it according to what you have in the margin here. It's of the Lord's mercies, it says. His loving kindnesses, His kesed, in the plural, that we are not consumed. There's your King James Version. That's a possible translation. Or this is possible, that the loving kindnesses never cease. But either way, folks, it amounts to the same thing. The only way that Jeremiah could be writing and that there would be anybody still remaining in the nation to read what he wrote was because of this truth that God's loving kindnesses just simply never are terminated. Do you remember what he said at Sinai? He said, let me alone that I may destroy them. But he didn't. Why not? Why not then? And why not now? Answer, what he revealed to Moses of the glory of his goodness. It's of the Lord's loving kindnesses that that has not happened, that he did not destroy them. Now, I want to ask you, if you will, to turn with me to the 136th Psalm. This is a psalm that we gave just a brief attention to recently because it is the psalm that extols again and again this matter of the Lord's kesed, His loving kindness. And you know that every one of the verses ends with that. It's almost like the tolling of a great bell all the way through this psalm so that at the end of every sequence, His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now I want to call your attention to verse 21 that says one of the evidences of that was that he gave the land of the Canaanites to Israel as their heritage. That is 40 years after Sinai. That's when Israel went into the land. The reason I'm calling your attention to it is this. That is the last historical event mentioned in that psalm. It goes on and refers to God giving food to all flesh, verse 25, to His rescuing us from our adversaries, verse 24, remembering us in our lowest state, verse 23. Those are generalities. The last specific 
historical events have to do with the conquest of the land. Specifically, initially, the land that was on the east side of Jordan. Okay, everybody, everybody got that? The story could have kept going, couldn't it? All through the overrunning of the land, as recorded in the book of Joshua, all through the time of the judges, about 400 years there, all through the period of Samuel and Saul and David and his descendants, all the psalm could have continued, 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 continued. Every verse of every new century could have ended the same way, right? Now look at the 137th psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and cried. Do you see what's happened? Folks, in the sequence of those two psalms, you've moved all the way from the events at the conquest of the land all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum, the book of Lamentations and the exile in Babylon. That's the sequence between those two psalms. In other words, the blank space between the end of Psalm 136 and the beginning of 137 is all those centuries. And now Psalm 137, they're experiencing exactly what Jeremiah is lamenting that we're looking at this morning. Now look at the next psalm. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Look at the eighth verse of that psalm. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is exactly what you said again and again in the 136th Psalm. The 138th returns you to it. And it is the first of eight Davidic Psalms moving toward the great Hallel section of the last five Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His loving kindness is everlasting. You've got the same sequence, folks, as you come to the end of the Psalter, which you want to remember is the working out of the Davidic covenant. So when, go back with me please to Lamentations chapter 3, when you are told in that 22nd verse that these loving kindnesses and God's experience, or the Lord's people and their experiences of them, that they never ever cease, you've got to remember that what you tapped into is the major storyline. In other words, that that verse is like a peak and it's just jutting right up out of the landscape and it is keeping before your eyes what the whole history of that nation has testified to and what the Psalter, all those psalms written to bring you to sing and to pray yourself unto praise, what the whole point of that book is, is embedded right here in this worst book of all when it comes to describing the things that God's sinful people had brought upon themselves. His loving kindnesses, their experience of that indeed, have never 
ceased. Or you can think of it this way as the evidence it's because of those that they've never been totally consumed. And the second of these great perfections to which God then calls their attention in ours this morning is His compassion. I don't know whether you remember or not, but that word is related to the word womb. Do you remember that? You do remember that? The way a woman is moved over her children. There's this sense inside of a stirring, of feeling over the children of her womb. And God asked in the 49th chapter of Isaiah, and you have to remember that Isaiah is predicting the things that are now recorded in Lamentations. Isaiah is long gone. He's with the Lord when Lamentations is written. But he foretold that they were going to experience these things. And through Isaiah, God asked the question, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Look at the fourth chapter of Lamentations. And look at the tenth verse. And I really almost hate bringing this to our attention because it is so disturbing. But you've got to read it, folks. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit so that we would see it. Lamentations 4.10. The hands of compassionate women. God asked through Isaiah, can a compassionate woman forget the son of her womb? Lamentations 4.10. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children and became food for them. And that is why when God asked that question, Isaiah 49, 15, he continued this way. Remember this? Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. You wouldn't have believed it. Isaiah said it. Can it actually be the case? Read it later. Lamentations 4.10. These may forget. And God concludes that statement by saying, though, but I will not forget you. You can take the single greatest illustration of the moving of emotional pity over the plight of a child. And it can all break down. But I never break down. I will never fail to have that compassion for you. My compassions never fail. And the 23rd verse says, they're new every morning. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that every morning you experience a pity from God that you've never, ever had before. It means they're renewed every morning. That every morning, here they come again. And folks, what are they? They're not always new or novel things, something unique for Tuesday. What they are is the renewal of the things that we've enjoyed all along that have sustained us. 
And God does this for millions of his people every single day. He never, ever fails in this regard. When they're sick, when they're bereaved, when they're lonely, when the weather is against them, when they don't understand themselves hormonally, when they're friendless, he renews the pity every day. He never fails in that. And this is because verse 24, verse, the end of verse 23, that his faithfulness is great. And that is that word in Exodus 34, 6 that is translated truth there. It has reference to God's reliability, his truthfulness, his complete faithfulness. He always will be what he always has been. Folks, he's made many, many promises to you and to me, just as he did to the nation Israel. Some of those promises are great. Some of those promises are small. He never overlooks the little things. He never forgets. He never fails. Always, this is true, that his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his reliability is the idea, is always great in that respect. And if ever there was an illustration of it, it's the survival of this people and this nation who had sinned away their day of grace. Or had they? And the answer to that is, because of the Lord's loving kindnesses, we are not consumed. His compassions continue to be renewed every morning, even in the midst of the smoking ruins. God's reliability is utterly faithful. The fact that we experience the judgment of God is nothing but the extreme evidence of his reliability, even though it's not from his heart. He said he would do it, and so he has, and he was righteous when he fulfilled it. But I cause my mind to remember certain things that he said at the very beginning of this story. And when I recall them to my mind, it gives me hope. It gives me confident expectation. Charles Simeon, who over 50 years pastored one church in Cambridge, and he outweathered a great deal of persecution and hostility from his peers in that educational institution. Simeon, toward the end of his life, wrote a letter to a missionary statesman in India and Simeon said something like this. He said that if he were to think about God in terms of his own perceptions, the medium he said of his own experience, that it often would be like a man trying to look at the sun from underneath the surface of the water. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. You're down under and you're looking up, and the water is rippled. And Simeon said, that's the way it often is for me. I come to the end of my life after all these years of ministry, and I look back, and so many times I was trying to see God, and the undulating of the circumstance made it appear as if God was fuzzy and moving all the time. But as soon as Simeon said, you stick your head out of the water, you discover the sun is just where it's always been. 
And the problem was my head was underwater. It isn't that the sun has changed at all. Spurgeon said, I want to preach this to you to get you to preach to yourselves. You need to pull out a few pages of your old diaries. You need to bring your head up and get a breath of air and see that this is true and look at it against the backdrop of these people's judgment and you'll see that it shines so brightly. It's because of His loving kindnesses that never cease that these people have never been entirely consumed. Great is God's faithfulness to everything that He has told them that He would do. What a marvelous, marvelous conception. Now folks, what it means for this nation is that for all of these centuries, all these centuries, these people have really been just like Moses' burning bush. Burning, but never consumed. Never entirely consumed. What an amazing, amazing thing. I've told you the story of the French king who asked Blaise Pascal, the theologian philosopher, what proof he had of the truthfulness of the Bible. And Pascal responded just so briefly, why the Jew, your majesty? Look at the persistence of the existence of the Jew, your majesty. Despite the hostility of all of humanity. I'm almost certain that most of you in this room have heard the Jewish national anthem. Please don't go looking for it right now on your phone. (laughs) But I do want to encourage you, I truly do encourage you this afternoon to listen to it. It won't matter whether you listen to it in English or Hebrew. What I'm mainly concerned is that you listen to the haunting melody. Folks, that national anthem is entitled with the Hebrew word translated hope in verse 29. Look at it again. Perhaps there is ha-tikva. Now that's the only time that word occurs in Lamentations. I told you that the words translated hope were differing words. What I want to do is read to you the lyrics of Hatikva, written in 1886 and that making up now today Israel's national anthem. And I want to read it to you and ask you, what do you hear? What is the hope? As long as within our hearts the Jewish soul sings, as long as forward to the east to Zion looks the eye, our hope is not yet lost. It is 2,000 years old to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Ha-tikva. What are they singing is their hope. And dear people, how sad it is that they still don't get the point. Their hope is still the wrong thing. You 
If they would only, and if we would only this morning, be sure that we do not end that stanza with the 23rd verse, that we look at the last verse of the stanza. What does that stanza, what does that last verse say? Look at verse 24. What does verse 24 say is actually the great hope? First line, the Lord is my portion. Those dear people continue to look at being a free people in their land as their hope. Can no one ask how it is that they lost their land in the first place? Why is it? What historically and what scripturally is the answer as to why they have been out of that land for all those centuries? Isn't it this, folks? Isn't it that to this day the Lord is not their portion? And I want to move us now. I want to move us from the nation and I want to move us from the historical circumstance to exactly the thing that we most need in our hearts. And that is the question of whether there actually is legitimate personal application of that stanza and those words and those wonderful glories of God's goodness. Does God intend for us to make a rightful personal application of that? And if we were to do that, what is it that we have to be able to confess? Look at the way this is put in the 24th verse. Excuse me, the 21st verse where it's introduced. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. What do you recall to your mind? Not just verse 22 and verse 23, but that you personally made the Lord your portion. How can you possibly think that His loving kindnesses will be your experience or that faithfulness to His promises will be your future unless you can actually say, from your soul... It says, I can say this from my soul. From my soul, I can say, the Lord is my portion. And if the Lord is your portion, of course, then all of His goodness is yours. And it all is exercised on our behalf. There are people in this room, I'm confident this morning, who with all of their hearts long for that assurance. And all of us who are Christian people, if we're not longing for it this morning, it's because we've experienced it. But give us another day or two when our heads are under the water and we'll be longing for it again. How can you be absolutely certain that these things are yours and that your future is sure and certain about this? Not just in eternity, but sure now on this earth. And the answer to that is you have to be able to say genuinely and without any fear that there would be any contradiction that God himself would not contradict you on this that God knows he's seen that as far as you're concerned he's everything he's everything and it's not that you're hanging on so that someday you'll be back in the land it isn't that you're hanging on so that someday this country will be what it used to be in the past or that we'll have a whole new slate of politicians 
or the economy will turn around or that somehow your investments will begin to prosper instead of going underwater. It isn't that you're just hanging on until the day comes that you have better health or you're restored to close proximity to your family so that finally you're not living in such loneliness or that the terrible ache in your heart because God has taken your closest loved ones to himself that somehow finally that ache will be diminished. Folks, that is not what you're hanging on for. That's the wrong hope. That's not the hatikva. It is your confidence that the Lord's loving kindnesses to you will always be yours and that every morning there will be the renewal of His compassions for you because you a long time ago made Him your heart. You made Him your portion. And if you're here this morning and there's a desperation in you regarding that and you're not quite certain at all as to how to assure yourself or ensure that that is the case, I just want to point out one thing to you that I trust will be most helpful to you. And I trust it will also be very reassuring for every one of us who've already known the Lord a long time, and that is this. And that is that God is the initiator of this. You do not have to go on some kind of suprahuman search to try to find God. If you read the Scripture, what you will discover is that God is the initiator. Out of all of Stephen's sermon, there's one line that I remember that has come to my mind, I would bet, hundreds of times through the years. And it's toward the opening of that sermon. And Stephen says, the God, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Abraham is an idolater. He's wandering around in the darkness. The God of glory appears to Abraham. And all through Israel's history, God keeps reminding them of the fact that they did not go hunting for him. And in fact, even after he had revealed himself to them, and even after he had found them, and even after he had cared for them, they always went astray. They continued looking for another God all through their history. It's how they ended up in this circumstance. God was always the initiator. He was always the one maintaining the relationship. And we're told in the New Testament that that is true of every single one of us as individuals. That God sent His Son into the world, down to this earth, in order to bring us to Himself. He initiated. We are always nothing but responders to His love. Always. Even the verses in Scripture that admonish us to seek His face, the wording of them is remarkable. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. He's near. He's near. Call. He's put Himself in a position to be found. So seek Him. David can say, when your voice said, seek ye me, my heart responded. It's the way God puts things in the Scripture. Jesus said to the apostles, 
You didn't choose me. I chose you. Read your Gospels. You'll see it. He chose them. He hunted them down. And He's done the same thing for you. And He's done the same thing for me. He's the great initiator in all of this. And there's a verse in 1 John that we would do well to ponder at a different depth than perhaps we generally do. And that's where we're told that we love Him because what? Because He first loved us. But folks, put that at the depth that it ought to be. How is it that you even have the capacity? That verse isn't just saying, because God loved you, you made a decision, now I'll love Him. I mean, it's, after all, it's, it's the only thing to do. After He loved me so much, I certainly ought to show my love for Him. John Owen basically said that the way it works is this, is that the heart of true believers are like needles that have been stroked on a magnet. And as a result of that, there's a secret virtue in them that points toward the love of God. So that they're always restless unless they're experiencing it. God is the one who stroked them on the magnet of himself and his love, folks. And that's why you have any capacity at all to love him. There's a secret virtue in your heart because of the new birth and the indwelling of the blessed spirit whose fruit is love. So your heart is always quivering and the needle is never steady until those few minutes when finally you see him as he is. And that's the great thing, folks, that a local church like our church is raised up by the Lord to do. We dare not exchange our birthright for pottage. What is the thing that people most need when they come to a service like this? What is the thing that my heart yearns for, that your heart hungers for? What a wonderful blessing in the fellowship that we have with one another. It's a tremendous thing to be ministered to by each other. It's a great thing to have friends in Christ. But if we come to these services and all we have is each other, we have next to nothing. You can forgive a person almost anything if he will bring with him to a service like this a sense of the presence of God. That is what my heart hungers for when I sample a service or when I'm in our own assembly here. I want, a, I want to be brought into the presence of the Lord. And I'm jealous for that. And I'm disturbed by anything that detracts from it. We do not want to lose that great heart ambition. So that when people truly have a hunger for God, whether they're lost people whom Christ is drawing, the Father is drawing to Himself, or Christian people whose hearts have been magnetized to the Lord, that when they come, they find here a kindred spirit in that. Asaph could say, 
He could ask the Lord, and he knew what the Lord would answer. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Have you ever noted the next line? Because it's true, and it may be your experience right now today. My heart and my flesh may fail. They do. That's true. Your heart and your flesh may fail. As one of God's children. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And dear Christian brother or Christian sister this morning, you ought to say to the Lord right now today, you ought to say to the Lord as we come to the end of the service, you ought to say, oh Lord, you're my God and I don't want any other God ever. You're the only God I have and the only God I want. And you will be mine in life and in death. You ought to say the kinds of things to God this morning that people say to people whom they really love. You ought to keep yourself in the love of God today. You ought to say such and such loving things to God. You ought to tell God He's the only one for you. And when you can do that from your soul, you can say, I have hope. Because I've said from my soul, the Lord is my God and my hope. Our hymn book and all of the Lord's good hymn books have numbers that were written by His people in times of really great deep distress. If you turn with me please to 660, there's a very simple gospel testimony here by Joseph Scriven entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Stanza two asks, do we have trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Answer, yes, everywhere. Everywhere there's trouble. One of the reformers said as he died that he didn't expect that the world would be anything other than the world ever. Do you nourish some kind of vain hope that the world is going to be better that somehow it will improve? Or have you accepted the revelation of God's Word that the world will never be anything other than the world? Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your friend? What does the New Testament say that He's a friend of? It doesn't say He's a friend of the righteous. He's a friend of who? friend of sinners. Is that you? He's a friend of sinners. He just wants sinners to be completely honest. Pour out their hearts in repentance to Him. Call upon Him again for the fresh cleansing of His blood. And affirm to Him that they love Him. They love Him for who He is and what He does for them. So here's a wonderful hymn, folks, filled with question 
and containing the answer in the stanzas. We're going to sing it. May the Lord use it to strengthen our hearts and praise and give Him glory as we do. Let's stand together and sing.